You're listening to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is, of course, Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law over at NYU, and a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And today we're talking climate change and the IPCC, that is, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, because last week the IPCC released its sixth assessment report. And Richard, in your column this week, you have taken a few issues with how they've presented their information. So first, I'd like to ask you this. If climate change is an existential threat, what's so wrong with bringing people's attention to the worst case scenarios in order to motivate action? Well, that's a great question. And let me first say, uh, there are five separate scenarios that are put forward on this. And there's a very nice graph by Ron Bailey in Reason Magazine, which shows them. And they differ by five or six orders of magnitude. Now, if you thought it was an existential threat, you would say that the most serious scenario was the one that you had to follow. And if you did that, then you would take precautions which you thought were commensurate with respect to the peril at hand. But in fact, the one that they're talking about as existential is is one which assumes that the intensification of coal usage and the like will take place. So there'll be more rather than less, notwithstanding the fact that if you actually look at the pattern of resource utilization, dematerialization, decarbonization turns out to be the dominant pattern. And so the trend lines are certainly moving in the opposite direction. Then if you want to figure out how this is going to be positively correlated with respect to population, it turns out that pretty much everywhere across the growth now, the rate of growth in population is starting to go down. In some cases, it's actually reversing. And so if you think, in effect, that the number of people is going to influence the level of resource utilization, what you should have is essentially more optimistic estimates on these two points. So why then is this really important? Because if you overinvest in the carbonization threat, uh, thinking that you can stop it, uh, you're going to have to sacrifice other kinds of activities that are going to be more useful. So do you really want to put money in trying to change the temperature of the globe by one one hundredth of a degree in 50 years as opposed to feeding starving children and so forth? And there is no sense whatsoever when they start to deal with these things that there are alternative uses that available. The other problem that they have is they have a very one-sided view of what carbon dioxide does. There's actually a happier story, never mentioned in this particular report, which says that what carbon dioxide is, is an aid to photosynthesis along with water. And it has a much more powerful effect on photosynthesis than it does with respect to uh, global warming uh, through the change in various effects through the greenhouse gases. Well, if in fact the increase in carbon results in a reduction of extreme temperatures, which seems to be the evidence today, then even if the median moved up a bit, the real danger comes from the extremes, and those seem to have been moderated both on the cold side and on the warm side. Uh, So if you're going to start having having an existential threat. You can't simply do it by looking at one feature, greenhouse gases. You sort of have to do it by everything else. And then if it turns out there's some positives as well as some negatives, what you want to do is to make the changes that are going to be need commensurate with the risk. So let me just mention one obvious point. Uh, Do we believe in effect that we have to go cold turkey? And that is solar and wind. Well, those things are very unreliable sources of energy. And if you push yourself in that direction, uh, you will find that solar and wind will require you to use dirty coal, as they do in Europe now, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, which in Germany both happens fairly often in both cases. You don't want to put yourself in that case. Natural gas is 
basically a 50% more efficient on average than coal. And so if you could shift to natural gas right now, very little efficiency losses. Um, and in effect, what happens is you get a huge immediate gain. If you try to wait to expand solar, a very inefficient source of energy production in many cases, it's going to take you longer to get there. And the interim losses essentially are very, very real. So you don't want to be making these dire predictions if it turns out that what you can do in effect is to take other steps and then as time goes forward to check. People are going to say, well, it turns out these things may be irreversible. Oh, you have to get the odds on that. And those are probably very, very low, given the fact that paradoxically, as carbon dioxide and automobile use starts to increase, the rate of temperature growth that we've had in the last 20 years has not been all that significant relative to some earlier periods. That is, trying to figure out when this happens and why it happens, much more complicated on temperature uh, than could be explained by a single variable, and that is carbon dioxide. So getting the the right perspective on all of these things is necessary to getting a recent kind of response. Nobody wants to say, oh, don't worry about global warming at all. But you always want to worry about it in an understanding of the world which says, are you sure that the adverse consequences that we have are attributable to small changes in carbon dioxide as opposed, for example, to very large changes in the various animal husbandry rules or forest rules that are used uh, for thin thinning out forests and so forth. There are lots of other things you could do to control forest fires and other adverse events without having to go to the extreme or solar solution. Well, Richard, so, so the IPCC report puts this temperature increase of one and a half degrees as the inflection point of disaster. And so it's a, it's a clean thing to look at, okay, here's 1.5 degrees. But on the other side, how do you measure harm? How should we measure the negative effects of climate change to make these better decisions? Yes, well, look, I mean, there are two questions here. 1.5 from what, right? And it turns out they're talking about all of this stuff from 1750. And so, you know, we've already had a large amount of this temperature increase, and much of it took place in periods long before there was any intensive use of various kinds of carbon or fossil fuels. So the causation patterns are already a, bit, a little bit wonked up. And then the question is, why 1.5? You could easily see in some kinds of theories what they will say is if you put another straw on the back of the camel, the camel will break. But that's not what's going on here. Uh, this, as best I can tell, is a relatively continuous distribution in which adverse effects associated with uh, increased greenhouse gases increase. You're not quite sure whether it goes up more rapidly or less rapidly. Ironically, Arrhenius's law says that the greater the amount of carbon dioxide that you have in the air, the slower the increases will be for additional units, because it's a logarithmic rather than an exponential function. You don't really know that. So why do you want to posit that that's a crisis point? Generally speaking, if you're talking about these things, discontinuous models, i.e., before this, we're fine. After, we're dead. Just don't work. And you really don't want to say if you're at 1.49 disease, don't worry about anything. If you're at 1.51 degrees, worry about everything. And so they're getting all the wrong kind of signals with respect to this. So what you see in effect is it's a kind of a, a dual hysteria associated with some of these reports. You have in effect, oh my God, up to this level, you're all right. After this level, it's all over. And then you say, oh, and unless we go completely free of fossil fuels like a uh, 
Guterres, the uh, Secretary General of the UN, starts to suggest we won't be able to do anything good. Essentially, what you're trying to do is not deal with radical, discontinuous situations which have yet to present themselves. You're trying to make adjustments at the margin. And if you look at some of these graphs, uh, you can see there have been tremendous changes in the last 10 years. Uh, total utilization for any amount of new product is down by you know as much as 60 or 70 percent in all sorts of different kinds of areas. The use of coal in the United States, which was projected in about 2010 to remain constant, turns out to have dropped by 50 percent. That underestimates the amount of savings that have gone because the plants that tend to be put out of commission are those which are the dirtiest plant. So probably if you reduce the amount of coal that's used, the amount of coal adverse emissions that you're reducing is even more dramatic. And you don't want to ignore all of those particular benefits when you start to try to figure out how you're going to calibrate this kind of a problem. So it seems that trust in experts has fallen precipitately in the last few years. The IPCC is supposed to be made up of the experts on climate change. So how how can anyone who isn't a climate scientist look at their reports and, and credibly disagree with their results? Well, I mean, they really can't. What you have to do is to ask yourself, how do they appoint these kinds of peoples and what kinds of studies do they start to write? And, you know, one of the things that you hear from all sorts of libertarian thinkers who tend to be generally skeptical about the extreme versions of global warming is that they are systematically excluded from the academy when it comes to prestigious journals, publications, and things of that particular sort. And there seems to be some credibility of it. So what I always do is I I read some of the people who are, shall we say, somewhat more skeptical about the way in which this thing goes on, and then try to compare the arguments without trying to treat this as a matter of simply majority vote. Roger Pilkey, so, you know, he wrote some very nice studies about the way in which they made their various kinds of assumptions. Then what you do is you go back and you look at the reports, at least the summaries of it, and say, okay, um, do they answer this particular point? And if it turns out that they don't answer it, then you really want to essentially think again. Let me put this on my lawyer's hat, okay? Um, One of the things that we have to do is we have to have a theory of causation, a theory of causation that says the change in X will produce a change in Y. Now, it turns out that the early cases of causation that we've had were always push-pull. You are standing there and I drop a brick on your head, and we do not have to worry about the movement of asteroids to figuring out what is causing this particular change. The direct application of force by one person to another is the quintessential tort in Roman law and English law, and by God, today it's still the same kind of thing. When you're dealing with climate change, you don't have the push and the pull in the same kind of direction. What you do is you have a variable. Uh, Let's say that thing is temperature. And then what you have to do is to figure out what the various inputs are going to be. And there's no one thing that is going to influence temperature. It's going to be a hugely complicated joint causation situation. And what you have to therefore do is when you're starting to say, hey, hey, this is going to be the cause of that, you have to ask yourself, is there something else that you have to eliminate uh, before you can make this go? Just to give you an idea of how simple it could be and complicated Forget about uh, climate change for a second. Think of medical malpractice. Uh, What happens is, you know, you can obviously cut somebody's artery and cause them to bleed to death. Uh, But on the other hand, you're in the middle of surgery and all of a sudden an artery bursts. There's nothing which says it wasn't because of an aneurysm or because some other kind of natural condition that you had. And you therefore have to spend your time eliminating it. In this case, it's not either or. It's almost assuredly going to be a joint kind of causation situation. And so one of the reasons why analytics
analytically, I get very skeptical about things like the IPC report, is even though I'm not a real statistician under the thing, what happens is when you have a regression, you have on the left-hand side the dependent variable, and on the right-hand side, you put a bunch of other stuff assigned to each of it weight, we call it a coefficient, and then try to figure out how much of the phenomenon on the left side we could explain by the variables on the right side. Well, if the only thing you put on the right side is carbon dioxide, it's a very paltry model. What else do you want to put on there? Well, you want to put on there El Nino and La Nina. You want to put on there sunspots. You want to put on there various kinds of volcano. Uh, you want to put on there the different kinds of consequences that I've already mentioned associated with the use of, of carbon dioxide one way or another. And once you put all of those things together, it's really hard. Now, why is it hard? I'll, I'll give me just one other technical point. If you look at the map, the argument that you see with respect to global warming and carbon dioxide is that this is all monotonic. The more that you have by way of carbon dioxide, the more you will have by way of greenhouse gases, the more you'll have by way of temperature increases. If you start looking at the data, what you discover is these things start going up and down in a very strange way. So to give you one sort of conspicuous notion, uh, the temperature drop between February of 2016 and February of 2018 was about one degree Fahrenheit or about 0.56 degrees centigrade, right? I mean, you know, this is a huge drop. It didn't last and it reversed. But if you have a theory which only looks to carbon dioxide as the source of temperature change, you can't explain the downward movement because during that period, carbon dioxide concentrations continue to go up. So what you have to do is to figure out what the other factor is. And when I say factor, I really should say factors, that is make it into the plural, to figure out so you could explain the zigs and the zags out of this situation. And there is no way that you could model an up-down kind of phenomenon by simply having a unitary variable, which is said to only push you up and not down. And so therefore, you've got to start looking somewhere else. This is not a question of uh, earth science. What do I know about this? I'm not a real expert, but you know, I know enough about statistical inference to realize that if you've got something going in two directions, you have to have at least two independent variables to explain it, and probably a lot more. And so you get the methodological doubts. Then you start looking at the data doubts. And let me give you another illustration. Forest fires, right? Well, they've certainly gone up a lot recently. Uh, but it turned out they reached their bottom around 1955. But before that, say 100 years ago, uh, they were much more intense and much more frequent than they are today. So you've got to be able to explain why the decline and why the rise. It's not just enough to simply look at the last couple of years and to see the rise and to ignore the decline. Well, what's the explanation? There was very good husbandry that was used in the middle of the century. And lately what's happened is we just don't believe it in exactly the same way. And we're not prepared to have little fires that burn so as to prevent big fires from burning. And so if you watch what happens, you know, PG&E seems to be utterly incompetent in the way in which they handle it. When people start to build, they build very clear close to the fire lines and all the rest of that stuff. There's just a whole lot of things going on which could explain this. And you don't want to sit there and say, aha, all the increased fires are attributable to essentially uh, the greenhouse gases. And the irony is some of these fires took place in 2018 when global temperatures were going down. You're talking about projections in the future for global warming. When you're talking about forest fires, you're talking about the temperature at the time that it happens. And you just can't find that kind of correlation. And then if you start looking, oh, by the way, you know, none of these forest fires seem to start on land owned by the Koch brothers or Georgia Pacific, because they tend to, they all tend 
consent to start on public land? Is that because global warming is in one location and not in the other? Now, I'm not saying everything I've said is true. I'm not a true expert on the doing thing. But I do know if you hear these kinds of things, it's not responsible to make causal arguments in the face of cyclical movements up and down when there are other independent variables that have been pointed to, uh, which these studies tend to ignore. And so if you take all of this into account, it changes, I think, the way in which you want to look at it. And the IPC report or CC report seems to me to be sadly deficient in all of these particular ways. It's as if they're gunning for something. And then when you see the political overlay from the UN Secretary of General, you say this man has basically gone over the edge, over the top, because he's gone far beyond the evidence. He calls this thing a red alert. It's not a red alert. It's a subject that you really have to worry about. Uh, But there are many people, myself included, who think that the United States has the best record with respect to this stuff, and it has the least government intervention because firms that know how to manage their supply chains may be able to do a lot more good than a government with a command and control system. Let me give you just one illustration. I know we're winding down on time as to why the command and control system doesn't work. In the United States, when you want to put a new plant into service, they have to meet some very exacting standards. And so they get they take a long time to get in there. Uh, but on the other hand, there's very weak standards about modification of old plants to keep them going. So the correct standard should not be, can you get a new plant which is 100% better than the old plant, reducing things down to one? If you've got a plant online which is spewing out 100 units of filth per unit period, and you could get a new plant that can do five, you want to approve that immediately instead of saying, oh, let's spend on time to see how we can get it down to four. And so what happens is, Uh, you see a retardation of new-for-old technologies taking place by the high thresholds for new goods, and there's no comparison. Same thing with cars. I would rather have a cheaper car with, I say, 10% loss rate on catalytic converters in service today than keeping an old car in service when you got 200 units of filth coming out there. But if you raise the price of the new car in order to get the superior technology in there, the rate of substitution will start to go down. So there are all sorts of other issues that you have to worry about. And if you look at the IPCC report, the means and situations they don't talk about, the law of unintended consequences that you want to do something with one thing and it turns out you do something else is there. And why is that? Because it turns out if you raise the cost of introducing new technology, you will get less of it. And if you get less of it, you'll get more of the old technology, and that's going to be a mistake. Uh, That's what you have to be concentrating on. You have to have system design. You can't simply have people writing a report uh, which yells about all sorts of horrible things that are going to happen without being very careful on either the causation issue or the cure issue or even the simple judgment, where are we on this particular curve? And so I think that the hysteria may be too strong a word, but I think that serious people should be very skeptical of the way in which the IPC works, because even on the points that I'm talking about, you can see the methodological weaknesses and the empirical gaps in their arguments, and I think that that's a sorry kind of a situation that should be cured before we make huge investments in things that may not make any sense at all. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed our conversation, please rate our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening.
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.